I do have a story. You know, we were just talking about faith and correction. And now I want to show you an example of that in the Bible, you know, with Bible characters, what it looks like in human form to have that kind of surrender and faith. Okay? And it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and I think it's very much undertold. Very much undertold. You may know this, but you may not have, because I, I don't hear people telling this very much. Okay? So that's um, what I want to share with you. If you will, again, join me uh, in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the beautiful day, for the breeze coming in here, for your patience and your mercy and your son Jesus who shows us your face and the way that your eyes see us with compassion and sympathy. We thank you for gaining victories on the cross and now um, purifying us through your correction, your fatherly care, until the day we get to see you face to face. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. God is loving. He is so loving and patient. I know this for a fact because like I've told some people, people say, where are you from? I say, I'm actually from a pit full of miry clay. That's where I came out. Um, we've been talking about nature, the relationship between nature and the Word of God. And so I'm just going to review because some of you are now new again. For those of you that are here, my math teacher in high school at Academy, Mount Vernon Academy in Ohio. That's now closed, unfortunately. But um, he used to tell me repetition is learning. You know, and it, there's some truth to that. You know, you hear it once. It's okay. The second time you recognize it, maybe the third time you own it. Hopefully. So... Uh, we've been talking about the relationship between nature and the word. And we have that powerful quote that I shared last night that says, Nature is the key that unlocks the treasure house of the word of God. Isn't that a powerful quote? There's a treasure house here that actually needs to be unlocked. Some of us try to break into it because we don't know where the key is. But actually the key is there. And nature is amazing because... Just like these words in the Bible were written by holy men of old, inspired by the Holy Spirit, or some of them actually heard the voice of God directly speaking to them. And so they recorded the words of God. And so these are the most precious words in the world, which teach us of invisible things. But we also have the substance and evidence of God's own word in nature. In other words, when he spoke, substance came from it and evidence that he spoke. And so the two go together. And I want to tell you a, a sad story about a very close and dear friend to me. I won't tell you his name, uh, but he was a little bit older, a little bit older. He had been a teacher, Sabbath school teacher for many years. And I love this man dearly. Oh, I love this man. But he used to kind of complain to me uh, and he would say, why doesn't God perform miracles now for me in my life the way that he did for the Israelites when he was taking them through the wilderness? You know, he did such amazing things to prove himself real. He took the Red Sea and stood it up on ends. He brought water from a rock. He brought manna down from heaven. He did these amazing, amazing miracles that we can believe in him, and yet he does none of those things for us. But I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, God has performed a greater miracle for us today than he did for them in splitting the Red Sea. And here's why. When God speaks, nature has no choice but to obey. But when God speaks... Humans can look him right in the face of Jesus and by faith the Father, and we can say no. And so when, through his mercy and grace, he changes the human heart to want and to desire to do what he says, that is a greater miracle. Amen. That's a greater miracle than the splitting of the Red Sea. He has done a great great miracle. So I want to show you, we've been talking about faith and correction 
and cheerfully surrendering to something that is not joyous. The Bible says that the chastening of the Lord does not seemeth to be joyous in the present, but afterward it produces, do you know, we didn't even get to that part, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And we see that in the abiding uh, in the vine theme that we have in John chapter 15, it says that the father is the husbandman and he prunes every branch that will produce fruit. That means he corrects them. And so after enduring that correction, it produces fruit, the peaceable fruits of righteousness. So we want to, by faith, know, even though it's not joyous, we want to surrender ourselves to that correction and to his heart rather than our heart, to his will instead of our will, with all diligence and effort. Okay, with all diligence and effort, which we're going to be speaking the next topic on the next section will be on effort, Christian effort. And, um, and then the enemies of effort. But today what I want to show you is an example of, of someone surrendering their desires in their heart, in, in bodily form, in human form. Of course, we see Jesus. You know, we see Jesus doing that in Gethsemane. We see him doing that on the cross of Calvary. But I want to show you this story. Let's go to... 1 Samuel chapter, I think we're going to start in 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. And again, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. One of my favorite stories, I think it's way undertold. In fact, the spirit of prophecy tells us, this is a story about Jonathan. And even more so, maybe, his armor bearer, which doesn't even have a name. Um, it says that the name Jonathan is highly regarded in heaven. Here's what the Bible tells us in Samuel chapter 13 and verse 1. Saul, king of Israel, reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him... 3,000 men of Israel. How many men? 3,000. 3, Is that a good size army? It's a good size army, but that's all relative. If I had 3,000 men in my garden, it would be awesome. I mean, we would have fruit and there wouldn't be a single weed and oh, we might not even need fences. We could just put men around the garden to guard it, you know. If we had 3,000 men, what could we do? But it's relative and we're going to see that Okay, Saul chose to himself 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Mishmash. How many with Saul? 2,000. Two of the 3,000 were with Saul in Mishmash. And in Mount Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan, with his 1,000 men, smote the garrison of the Philistines, or Philistines, that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. So Saul is sitting there, you know, blowing this horn of victory. Look at what my son has done. We have gained a humongous victory. Now, it says... And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines. Did Saul actually do it? No. It was Jonathan and his thousand men who had done it. But, you know, Saul blowing the trumpet kind of takes that on himself. So we can see here Saul, we know his end. And actually what happened just not long after this, as he was waiting on Samuel, um, you can read that. But his end was not good. Very, very sad. We see him already here diverging. Up, you know, exalting himself. And it says, um, but it wasn't just Israel that heard. It says, and that Israel also uh, was had in abominations with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. Okay? So they had this little victory over a garrison. Now the Philistines are kind of 
regrouping. They're gathering people together. And here's what it says. They gather 30,000 chariots. Now, how many men did Saul have all together? 3,000. They have 30,000 chariots. Now, is 3,000 a lot of men? No. They have 10 chariots for every man. That's a lot. Okay? But then it goes on to say they had 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. So that's two horsemen for every Saul, every man of Saul's. So they have 10 chariots, two men on horses, and then they have, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. Now, I don't know exactly how many that is, but the Bible in some places accounts for like 250,000 men or 300,000 men. So when it says people as the sand of the seashore, it's probably even more than that, especially if they had 60,000, you know, that they could count to 60,000. So if it's just men ongoing and ongoing. So I don't know how many it is, but it's definitely way more than 3,000. 3,000 is starting to look very small, isn't it? Okay, so then let's see what happens in this battle. In verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. Is that a good, um, like, military strategy? <laughs> Would you be as a leader like, my army is just hiding. This is not good. This is terrible. And then it says, And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him were trembling. So they were not encouraged at all. Now there's parts of the story that we're going to skip for time because I want to get to the point of this battle. So let's go to chapter 14. So then it says here in chapter 14, verse 1, now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. So here you have, you know, Saul's men with Jonathan's men, these 3,000. And actually, if you read the story, many of them actually ran home. So they have much less than the 3,000 now. And so Jonathan has this idea. He goes to his armor bearer. An armor bearer is usually a younger man, very faithful, you know, well chosen. You don't just choose any young man to carry your armor. You're choosing one that's going to be ready to give you that armor when you need it. So, but we don't know the name of this young man. We don't know his age. We don't really know where he came from. He's just the armor bearer. But he tells his armor bearer, I've got this idea. It seems like a million people over there, the Philistines. He says, come and let us, that's me and you, go over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side. And so what do you think happened? Do you think his armor bearer said, Oh, that sounds so cheerful and joyous. I mean, what he was talking about was putting his life at risk. This armor bearer. Putting his life at risk. So then it says there in verse 2, And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. So he only has 600 men left. Now in verse 4, so um, Jonathan and his armor bearer left. And then in four, it says, And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. Sharp, in this case, means steep. Okay, so he's down low. In a military um, battle, what's the best ground to have? The high ground. He's coming across on the low ground. And you definitely don't want to be between two sharp, steep cliffs. You know, it sounds like that phrase that we have, that you're between a, a rock and a hard place. He's like, he has nowhere to go. He can only go forward or back. He can get trapped in there. And the people above could easily just shoot him with an arrow. So let's see what happens. They're going over, not in a strategic way, it seems. And then it says, 
And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sine. The forefront of the one was situate northward over against Mishmash, and the other southward over against Gibeah. So it's just giving the, us the details. And then it says, And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Is that a statement of faith or what? Just you and me. Why don't, just you and me. There's like a million of them over there. But you and me, let's go. And then he says this amazing statement of, my, of faith. It's one of the most faithful statements that I've seen in the Bible other than not my will, but thy will be done. Here's what it says. It says, the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. So that's why I say we need to be careful with like science versus faith, because science does all the numbers. Faith says they've got a million, we've got two, but God doesn't need more than two. God doesn't need more than two to win this battle because he's going he's gonna to win the battle. So let's give some faithful effort. Now, he could just sit back and say he doesn't need anybody. He'll just win it. But that's not Christian effort. God calls us to exercise faith. Faith is exercised, okay? And it becomes more strengthened. The Bible talks about those who are weak in faith and those who are strong in faith, and, it, it, and it's an exercise process. So here we can see that Jonathan must have been exercising his faith because he has such strong, strong faith. Okay, so he says, The Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Now, but he's talking to a younger man who may have less of an experience. But this younger man has been at the side of Jonathan, right at the side of Jonathan. So even as a young man, he could say, I quit. You have lost your mind. There's a million over there. You want to go over there just us two? You're crazy. That's what he could have said. And he could have run for his life. But here's what the young man says. And his armor bearer said unto him, and I love this statement, do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Isn't that amazing surrender? He's like, whatever you want to do, I'm with you. Do whatever is in your heart, I'm with you. That brothers and sisters, is an example of what abiding in Christ is. When we go to Jesus and we say, whatever is in your heart, do it. Whether it's correction, whether it's a call to something, whatever it is, do it. And I'm with thee according to thine heart, not mine. Your will, not my will be done. This is like an evidence in human form what it is to be abiding in Christ. Here, Jonathan is sort of like a symbol of Christ. The armor bearer is like us. And you know we're called in the New Testament to put on the whole armor of God and to go into this battle? We are called to be this armor bearer. That's who we are. In this story, you might put yourself in the shoes of Jonathan, and that's great. But actually, that, that's more like Jesus. We're this armor bearer. We're called to surrender and to have that kind of faith to the correction of our loving Father and our Savior, Jesus. So he says here, I'm with thee according to thy heart. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Then Jonathan reveals his actual plan. He says, then said Jonathan, behold, we will pass over unto these men and we will discover ourselves to them. Now, we don't speak that way. Discover in this case just means show. Now, again, if you're in a battle, high ground is better. Not being between two cliffs is better. And being incognito, which means like invisible or unseen, is awesome. Right? If you can maneuver without being seen, you are doing very well in a military battle. In this case, though, Jonathan says, we're going to go over to them and we're going to just show ourselves to them. I mean, what does that even look like? It's like, hey! Here we are. 
And that's a terrible strategy. But then here's what he says. He says, we're going to just go over there and we're just going to show ourselves to them. If they say thus unto us, tarry, which means wait, wait until we come to you. Then we will stand still in our place and will not go up unto them. But if they say this, come up unto us, then we will go up for the Lord hath delivered them into our hand. A million people into this little young man armor bearer in Jonathan. And he's saying, if this happens, we will know that the Lord has delivered them into our hand. Oh, what kind of faith is that? What's amazing to me is just the humility of Jonathan. Okay, the humility and meekness of Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of the king, was he not? Son of the king. Every right to be next in line to be king of Israel. Every right. Do you remember the song that the people used to sing about David and Saul? What was it? Saul. Yes. Saul kills thousands and David his ten thousands. If there was a second verse of that song, it should say, and Jonathan, his hundreds of thousands. That's what it should have said. But Jonathan never said, hey, there needs to be a second verse to that song. Do you remember what happens over here? He never did that. In fact, he loved David so much, this strange shepherd boy who had really no right to the throne. He was the one that should have gotten the throne. But Jonathan tells David, of a surety, you will be the next king of Israel. Wow, what kind of humility does Jonathan have? And Jonathan, sadly, if you don't know the story, he actually stays with his father. After his father has, like, trying to kill David, has revealed that his heart is not with God at all. But he honors his father even unto death because he dies at his father's side in battle. What a beautiful example of a faithful young man Jonathan is. I know why a lot of people name their children Jonathan. So amazing. So here's what he says. If they tell us to come up to them, then we will know that God has delivered them into our hand. And then he says, and this shall be a sign unto us. In verse 11, and both of them, so that means the armor bearer went along with this plan. And both of them discovered themselves under the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they have hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up unto us. Now, was that the sign? That was the sign. Come up unto us and we will show you a thing. So they're talking, you know, yeah, trash. That's what we say. We're, they're talking trash. They're talking fighting talk. And they're very confident. We'll show you a thing. And then it says, And Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, and this is the next most beautiful thing. Let's stop here for a minute and let's go look at another armor bearer. David little shepherd boy comes to check on his brothers as they're about to fight the Philistines. And the Philistines had agreed that if they had this huge giant named Goliath, do you remember that? And they agreed, instead of all of us fighting and just having all this bloodshed, let's just choose our best man and you choose your best man and we'll just put them up against each other. And whoever wins, the other one will just serve the, the victor. You know, all of us will just serve. That way, not everyone has to die. And so, Goliath would come out and he would mock the children of Israel over and over. And David's older brothers were there. And David comes to check on them. And he sees this mockery. And he's saying, why are you, the people of God, letting this uncircumcised man mock you? Why not send your best man out there? And David said, I'll do it. Don't let him dishonor God like that. And so David actually tries to put on Saul's armor. Saul tried to put it on David. And David starts to go out without the armor. 
And Goliath came out to meet him. And he was still mocking him and saying all these things. And like, why are you sending a dog? But do you know where the armor bearer was of Goliath? The armor bearer went in front of Goliath with the shield. Even toward little old David. And Goliath would come up behind him. Because that's what the armor bearer would do. It's take the big shield and go in front. And the shield would move. So that no spear or arrow could come. Or even if the man charged, he would get to the armor bearer first. So that's how the armor bearers worked. But look what Jonathan says to his armor bearer. As they're about to go meet this huge army. In verse 12, it says, And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, Come up after me. Isn't that amazing? This is another sign of Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. I'm your forerunner. I've now endured every temptation. I've gone to the cross. Now I'm going to see my father. And I want you to come up after me. Put on the whole armor of God, but come up after me. Follow me. And his sheep will follow him. He says, come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. Still a statement of faith. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and upon his feet. Upon his hands and his feet. He knows he's going to gain the victory. But he's probably still a little bit of afraid because he's still a human. He's still able to die. He's still able to err. You know, Jesus in Gethsemane, he was crawling. I don't know if you know that story, but he went away to pray and he left the disciples a little bit behind. And as he was praying and he was feeling the separation of God, fear entered him. Did you know that? Fear entered Jesus. He was afraid that he was so connected to God that as his father started to withdraw himself from him, he was afraid that the human part of himself would not be able to endure the suffering and the temptation that he was going to have. So he was praying and that weight of the sins as they were being poured upon him were so heavy that if you read the desire of ages called Gethsemane, it said that he would crawl face to the ground back to his disciples. So when it says in the Bible that he would come back to them and see them asleep, he was crawling. Jonathan here is crawling on his hands and knees toward the battle. Jesus, when he got the word of faith, the sign to him, he was asking, if there be another way, if there be another way, then let this cup pass before me. But if not, not my will, but thy will be done. And did you know the answer came back, but it came back in silence? Because what was Jesus asking for? If there's another way, if there's another way, and God was silent. No other way. There was no ram in the bush. And so Jesus took that sign of silence as such a sure sign that he needed to go forward and that it was God's will. He took that silence. And so he moved forward on his hands and knees. It was amazing. So here Jonathan has received his sign of faith. He's moving forward on his hands and knees and his armor bearer after them. And then it says this. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer slew after him. So they get to the top, and, and it just gets straight to the point. Jonathan is now, yeah, just slaying away. And his armor bearer is now after him, joining right in. And then it says, And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within, as it were, a half acre of land. And here's some agricultural um, details for you. Remember I told you this is my guide for agriculture? It says, which a yoke of oxen might plow. So if you want to know about how much land, you should take a yoke of oxen out and figure out how to plow before they'll get tired. That's a half acre. There's a little bit of agriculture. So here they are in a half acre. I don't know if you know what a half acre of land is, but it's pretty large. It's pretty large. Um, it's about 110 feet by 110 feet. Okay. Oh, there you go. That's right. Sorry, because 210 by 210 is the whole, so we don't cut both in half. We only cut the one. So 210 feet by 105 feet. Yeah, that's about right. 
Okay? So if you're giving 100% of your effort in that amount of space of land, and you've come into hand-to-hand combat with 20 men, are you tired? Yeah. Have you ever done any training, like any physical exertion, 100% of your strength for even 90 seconds? We used to do this thing because I used to be a basketball coach called interval training. And so some people go for like long periods of time, but then there was some science saying that if you give 100% effort for like 90 seconds and then rest for three or four minutes, and then 100% of your effort and then rest, and that rest period should be just like less effort. So you sprint for 90 seconds and then kind of like slowly jog for three or four minutes to recover and then sprint. It's supposed to like produce human growth hormone in you, okay? But when you do that kind of effort, in Hawaii, we used to train on the beach. We took like a wooden board. We put two skids on it. And then we would take a five-gallon bucket, fill it up with sand, and put it on that. And we had a huge, like, um, marine rope. And that marine rope came way out, and it was attached to um, a bamboo pole. So the two ropes were there, and then we would take that pole and hold it up like this so all the strain was throughout our whole body down to our feet, and we would run in the sand. And the running in the sand, pulling a sled like that, there's no momentum gain. You know, when you run, you start to get momentum. But when you have that sled behind you sinking in the sand, there is no momentum gain. So every bit of effort is being strained, and as soon as you stop, you're done. It's not like running where you slow down to a stop. I'm telling you, 90 seconds of full effort puts you, for some of us right now in the condition we are in, if we tried that, we'd probably faint. These men have fought for, you know, hand-to-hand combat with 20 people. They have probably expended every single bit of effort they have. Subtract 20 from the enemy. How many are left? A lot. Oh, a lot. By the way, people ask me now because I'm not trying to glorify that kind of uh, workouts. You know, we gain some physical strength. People ask me now, you know, you're, hey, you're pretty fit. You're like in your mid-40s. Do you work out? And I say, yeah, actually, I do. I work outside. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, that's what I do. Uh, so anyway, they slew these 20 men. And then in verse 15, and there was a trembling in the host, in the field, and among the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled, and the earth quaked. As they're doing their best effort, as they're doing their best effort, God shakes the earth on their behalf. He shakes the earth. He sends an earthquake. So it was a very great trembling. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away. And they went on beating down one another. They went on beating one another. So when they had given their all, God made up the rest. So... The enemies in your life, brothers and sisters, the enemies to righteousness, the enemies of forming that perfection of character that the Bible calls us to, to the full stature of Christ, seems insurmountable. Seems insurmountable. But it's not. Because as you give your full effort, God can shake the earth. He can shake the earth. And then here's another quick lesson I'm going to throw in here for this one. And this happened over and over. If you look at all the battles in the Old Testament, many, many times there was this thing called a disconfiture. That's like confusion. And this confusion would happen in an army, a military army, and almost every single time that there was this confusion happening, they would start fighting each other. Okay? In the Adventist church, there's a disconfiture right now. And it's resulting us in us fighting each other. That's not the way it's supposed to be, brothers and sisters. We're supposed to be united. 
it's very easy for a young person, or an older person for that matter, I've seen it all ages, so it's just easy for people. It's very easy for people to become zealous for wanting that perfection and seeing it as being so insurmountable but still desiring it and then looking around at all the other things that are wrong with those around us and almost pointing to them as the problem. You know, then we like impose like our calling onto the church. You know what I'm saying? We're saying, God is saying, reflect me. And then we say, well, the church isn't reflecting you. And so then I can't. And so I want to attack those who are not. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to gather those, press together with those, speak in terms of sympathy and compassion and encourage us toward the mark and speak of what God can do for us. Point to the things that he has done in the past. Point to the fact that he will shake the earth when we together, even if it's just two, where two or three are gathered together, even if it's just Jonathan and his armor bearer, because the Lord is not constrained to gain a victory by many or by few. So find another person, brothers and sisters, that you can pray with. Find another person who is on the same track and who, who has surrendered their heart to Jesus. Come together with them and pray. You know, come together with them and pray and be an example an example. Here we have this example. So still, thousands of years later now, we are reading the example of Jonathan. Not because they attacked all the men who were hiding in the pits and caves and who had no faith, but they just came together, the two of them, and did what God was asking them to do. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Okay. So the question is, what is faith? What is faith? Any answers after this, this story? What is faith? Does faith have works? I like to say work instead of works. You know, we pluralize it. That's just because we're doing a lot of work, so we call it more than one work. But to me, like works... You know, works is like something that we do to try to gain the approval of God, where work is what we do to be with God. Okay? The effort we give puts us at Jesus' side. Do you know why? Because God is at work. Remember Jesus? They were trying to accuse him on the Sabbath day. They said, you know, how can you be healing these people on the Sabbath day? He says, my father's working, so I must be working. In other words, my father is trying to uphold everyone's health, even on the Sabbath day. So I'm going to heal on the Sabbath day. And then he calls us in Matthew chapter 11. You know this. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor. That's mean like working to be approved. But then he exchanges your working, your laboring for something interesting, an apparatus of work. He says, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Do you know what a yoke is? We just read about it. A yoke is actually a wooden thing. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a wooden thing that attaches two together so that they can do one work together. So he's saying, all of you that are laboring, come and work with me. He's not saying stop working or stop giving effort. He's saying work with me. But then he tells us why. He wants you to work with him. Not so that you can become so good that I'll approve you. Not so that you can then earn your way into heaven. He says, come, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. That's the reason. To learn of him. And so when we take his yoke upon us, it doesn't make us have any more merit. Do you realize the situation of taking his yoke is like an invitation you know, it's hard to understand because in this world, what we do for education is we spend years preparing to work. And then once we get our credentials, then we get to work. Okay? Jesus says, wherever you are, come and I'll put you to work here. And then you'll learn of me. And then he says, you know, knowing the Father and the Son whom you've sent is eternal life. 
So we work not to gain any kind of virtue for ourselves. We actually work just to be at his side, just to be at the master teacher's side and to watch his handiwork, to see what he does. So Jonathan knew this, right? Jonathan went to battle not so I can gain this victory so then God will say, okay, soldier, you're a good, faithful soldier. Now you can be one of my chosen. No, he went knowing that God was going to do the work and he just wanted to be there with him. Okay? He had such an experience of faith grabbing hold, like you said, of the merits of Christ. And the merits of Christ also have purchased us have earned our eternal pardon, but also the right to work in the lives of others. Right? And so to be right there at his side, working and watching and learning to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, then we know it's not us. It's just the Lord's not restrained. The Lord's not restrained to save. So if we can just be at his side and watch that, we'll gain such a faith such a relationship with him that we can count on him, that we'll trust him fully, and that when he comes back in the clouds of glory, instead of us being afraid, we'll say, there's my friend, my savior, and my teacher. So God calls you to be an apprentice. Okay? God calls you to be that armor bearer, like the armor bearer to Jonathan. Did the armor bearer go before him and have, you know, once he had defended a bunch of people, then Jonathan approved him? No. Jonathan says, come up after me. I'll show you how it's done. So when Jesus is taking and putting you in that yoke, he's not trying to get you to like earn the right to be at his side. He's just trying to pull you close so that you can see what he's going to do. You understand? But when you're in that yoke, he does say, I have given you effort. I've given you the choice for effort. Will you keep your feet moving? Will you keep your feet moving? So I want to turn very quickly to being yoked with Christ. And I'm going to tell you just a little bit of my, my story. So I um, have learned a little bit of faith through hardships. Um, my upbringing, let's see. How did I become Adventist? I'm going to share a little bit of it in this session, a little bit of the next session. My father was raised in a Catholic family in Massachusetts. Okay. My last name is Chaya. It's from Poland. And there, there's a, there's a pretty strong Catholic presence. So in Massachusetts, where my dad is from, my uncles were Catholic. A lot of the old pictures, those black and white pictures I see, are with my family in, in convents or here and there. Um, my my great uncle's name is Ignatius, <laughs> if you know anything of about what that means. We would call him Uncle Iggy for short. Um, my dad, at a young age, lost his mother to a kidney disease, kidney failure, and she died when she was around 45. Okay? And so my dad lost his mother. My dad's dad was a bulldozer operator and a dynamite expert. So if they were going to be putting in a bridge or something, he would. Um, run the explosives and run the bulldozer. He was a very hardworking man. Um, he had a hard life. He actually died in, at a relatively young age as well. I got to meet him, but I never really had grandparents. I love old people because I'm, I have this like missing place. My mother, on the other hand, was born in Kentucky in a little wooden house that had no electricity and no running water. And they had an outhouse. Okay, my mom's not that old, but that part of Kentucky, that's just the way it was. She's number 13 of 14 children, my mother. So she was an aunt the day she was born, because her older sisters already had children when she was born, uh, which means that she was raised by a lot of her older siblings. And so my grandmother on that side actually died um, when I was a very young child, and my mother's dad died when she was a baby. So I never had a grandfather on that side, never had a grandmother that played that role on my dad's side, never really had grandparents. So I just love being around people with wisdom and experience. 
um, I feel like I still need that. So I'm very easy to attach myself to old people and say, you're going to be my grandpa <laughs> or you're going to be my grandma. I love old people. So we have old people in our church and some people complain about that. Ah, oh, we shouldn't be complaining about that. Ah, oh, we have these precious people. And instead of complaining about them, we should tell them about all the things that they can still do and the value that they still have. You know, we focus so much on the young people. Like, well, we have to have young people in order for our church to be good. And that's true. We need future. But we shouldn't forget what we already have in our hand. And so if you are a young person or a middle-aged person, don't forget the gray hairs. They have great wisdom for us. Go hear their story. So I'm just going to share a little of my story. I don't have gray hairs yet. In fact, I barely have hairs at all. But, uh, well, actually, I do have a little bit in my beard. I have some gray hairs. It's coming. Maybe when my beard is all gray, I'll grow it. It's just not a good beard right now. It's, um, but I really like the gray hairs. Um, my dad left home. He joined the Air Force. He got stationed in Arizona. And that's where he met my mother, who was living with her older sisters. They were very young. They were not actively Christian, although my dad had that Catholic background. He really had, you know, it wasn't satisfying him at all. So he was just living um, basically a life that did not acknowledge God. And my mother, too, to a certain degree. They, they got married at a very young age, and they immediately started having trouble. And my dad went to Vietnam, and while he was away, they started having... You know, problems when they came back. Um, they had my older brother, who's just two years older than me. And life for them was awful. They fought all the time. They did not respect each other. They did not honor each other. They were doing things that people shouldn't do. And then um, my mom got pregnant with me. And she said, I do not want to bring another child into this world. I do not want to bring another child into this world. And I left out one important detail. When my parents got married, they moved off of base and got an apartment outside of base. And in that apartment, it was completely empty, except in the hall closet. There was a little book. I forget the actual title of it. It was like a retitling of the book Steps to Christ. And my mom picked up that book. And on the back, it had a stamp, like courtesy of such and such Adventist church. And she read through that book. And she went to my dad. You know, she's about 20 years old or something. And she went to my dad, just like 21 years old. And she said, or 22, she went to him and she said, she took that book and she said, if we ever decide we need a church, this is the one we're going to go to. And, of course, they didn't feel the need for any church, so they didn't. A little while later, again, they got to a point where life was terrible. Um, my mother said, I don't want to bring another child into this world. I want a divorce and I want an abortion. And so my mom and dad were sitting in the car outside an abortion clinic. And my dad being Catholic, even though he wasn't really actively Catholic, just something was telling him in the back of the mind, you know, Catholics teach very strongly against abortion, which is a good teaching. Amen. Remember I said as a principal... Whenever truth comes, no matter who's carrying it, acknowledge it. That's a good teaching. And I wouldn't be here today if that wasn't a good teaching. <laughs> because my dad sat there and he said, you know, something in the back of his mind was telling him, this is a line I don't really feel comfortable crossing. So he told my mother, you know, let's not get an abortion. And my mother wouldn't hear it, just wouldn't hear it. She was set, I'm going to have an abortion. And so my dad convinced her, if you can just wait another week, and if you still want the abortion, then I'll support it. And I don't think he really had a plan for what he was going to do in that week. He was just buying time because he could see he, she had her heart set on it. And so that was a wise move. Instead of trying to get her to agree completely with him, he took one, you know, just a step. And isn't Jesus beautiful with us? He's so gentle. He takes us gently by the hand, and he leads us step by step. Step by step. And so, um, and that was exhibited even in my dad at that time, who really wasn't acknowledging God that much. But he made that agreement with my mother. She went away. She was still determined a, a week later. She went to the abortion clinic. She goes in, 
and she gets the assessment. And the doctor says, you know what? If you were here about a week ago, we could perform this. You're just a bit too late. I don't feel comfortable performing this abortion. And so here I am because of that. Life still got so bad, she wanted a divorce. She went to an attorney to file for divorce. Now, things were different back in those days than they are now. You, you go to an attorney, it's pretty easy to get divorced these days. Um, back then, the attorney looked at my mother. He said, you are so young. You have two children. Um, you have no work history, because she was just staying home with my older brother. You have barely any skills. You're poor. Your husband barely makes any money. He's not going to be able to support you, and you can't support yourself. You need to go and work this out. And she said, but we've tried. There's nothing we can do. And he said, well, then get counseling. And she's like, well, I'm poor. I can't afford counseling. She, he said, well, then go find a church, because some of them give free um, marriage counseling. And then from a couple years before... The light came back on. If we ever need a church, that's the one we need. So she went back. She got the yellow pages out, and she looked up that church. And she called them, and she asked the pastor, do you offer free marriage counseling? He said, yes, we do. And actually, he went over and just encouraged them to start Bible study. So he, he just moved them into a baptismal track, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? It kind of worked. Because not long later, they were actually both baptized. My dad left the military and actually started to support our family through literature evangelism. Amen. Can you imagine? Amen. And so he was selling books like The Great Controversy and the, you know, the Desire of Ages and The Little Steps to Christ, which gave him an extra son and gave him an opportunity for new life. In Jesus. Amen. Now, sadly, he did not have a great experience in that um, because, you know, the way he told me is that the group that he was a part of seemed to come back at the end of every day and just talk about how much money they made. And so he wasn't in it for the money. I mean, he was, he was giving up, like, everything in life at this point. And so... He got a sour taste, and so he left that and went back to regular work. And, and it almost was like a little bit of a decline since then. Um, my parents were married for 16 years and then finally got divorced when I was 10 years old. Now neither of them are Adventist. But there are signs of hope. Seeds planted are still there. I see germination. You know, my dad loves to give cards for things like birthdays and other holidays. He loves to give cards. And my dad gives cards like almost no one else can. I don't know how he does it because he doesn't write them himself, but he spends such, such time picking out the one that says exactly what he wants it to say. And he's been giving me cards that show that the Holy Spirit is working on his heart. Amen. And my mother who didn't want to, and she, now she's probably going to hear this because it's going to be on audio verse. <laughs> My mother, um, you know, she's been having some troubles with some of the things. And she asked me when I told her I was going to come here, she said, oh, is it going to be recorded? Because she wants to hear. God is so good. And I know that he'll work through them if they'll just open the door to his knocking hand. So for the first 10 years of my life, though, before that divorce, I was in what I thought was the perfect little Adventist home. We were poor, but I didn't know it. We had food on the table every day. We were kind of so poor at one time that we were living in Worthington, Ohio. Do you know where Worthington, Ohio is? Maybe you've heard of it, and maybe you don't even know that you've heard of it. There's a company there, was, that's called Worthington Foods. Have you heard of Worthington Foods? It owned Loma Linda Foods, or at least they were in partnership for a long time, right? So uh, Worthington Foods factory was basically one street over from me. So I could smell grillers. <laughs> like my, my world was like an Adventist world. 
there was, I lived two houses down from the, the church on a dead end. It was a beautiful church, you know, little houses lined with, with trees. And at the, the end of the street was the church, just right up the steps and the pillars and the, the brick church. And I lived just two houses down. And right next to that was my elementary school. I lived in this little, just little Adventist community. Um, just on the other side of the, the main street was uh, something called Harding Hospital. Harding Hospital was, um, you know, Harding, the president that we had, Harding. Some of his relatives were actually Adventists, and they started a mental hospital there. They were psychiatrists, and they started an Adventist mental hospital. And that's where my dad worked as a, as a landscaper, like a groundskeeper. And so we got to live in this little place, and the house we lived in, we, we couldn't afford otherwise, but his, his little hospital gave it to us, you know, as a part of the package. Not gave it, but, you know, free rent, or not free rent, but lowered rent. And so we got to be there, and we didn't have very much money, and the church members knew it. So we had Mr. and Mrs. Hudnell, they're asleep now, but they used to work in the cafeteria of this hospital. And so all the expired food they would sneak into their trunk of their car and they would come at night to the back door and they would knock on the door and they would deliver us these like expired foods from the cafeteria, like old little cartons of milks and like little puddings and other things that they couldn't serve anymore that they were supposed to throw out, they threw to us. And it was like the greatest day in our house when all, that, all those goodies came to our door. And uh, I got to go to this little Adventist school, first through eighth grade, called Griswold Christian Academy. And then I went, um, when my parents were divorced at 10, uh, my parents were still good enough to me to continue sending me to the Adventist school. Because the public schools there are not, not good. And then they could not afford to send me to an academy. But there was a church member who pulled me by his side and paid my way and made me work, too. He made me work during the summers and then encouraged me after the, the summer leading in. He encouraged me to find my own work. So I began working in various things and paying my own as much as I could. And he would pay the rest. So I got through academy. Then I went to college on a volleyball scholarship, of all things. Our little Adventist Academy, we only had 134 students, but we made it to the state tournament in volleyball. We were really good. Praise the Lord. It, hey, praise the Lord. Uh, yeah. But, it, you know, being in volleyball like that and being pretty good at it, you know, um, started to take my eyes off of Jesus, to be honest with you. I, maybe you guys love sports. I loved sports. I loved sports so much, it was the way I learned how to read. I mean, I hated reading. Reading comprehension was not my best thing, but I loved reading about sports. It was awful. <laughs> I, I seemed to enjoy it at the time. I liked it so much that when my older brother came to me one day and he said, hey, I heard on sports radio, ESPN sports radio, that there's an opening for like a sports analyst. And I can't think of anyone that would be better at that than you. You should go apply for that job because I knew everything about everything. Like I knew the high school statistics of players who were now in college and where they came from and why they were good and what rankings they had. I just knew everything. And I wasted a lot of my youthful mind on things that really didn't fruit. And so the Lord helped gently prune that away. But I played volleyball, but I injured my shoulders, my knees. I'm still, you know, weakened because of some of those exertions that I did. And I ended up leaving because it was so painful for me to play volleyball that I didn't enjoy it anymore. And you know, the Bible says that the chastening of the Lord in the present does not seem to be joyous. It was not joyous for me to leave the college the game I thought I loved because of pain, because I had lost all joy for it. But what a blessing. Oh, what a blessing. I look back and I am just so thankful that the Lord pulled me out of it. 
because I was on a path that was not good. But unfortunately, I wasn't done yet. I found out that I was pretty good at coaching, <laughs> coaching sports. And so then I started coaching sports a few years later. Um, I won a championship in my first year as a varsity head coach for a school that had never won a championship before. For a school that barely ever, never even won half of their games. In our first year, we were eight and O, and we played, a, and it was a small school, not Adventist, and we were playing a school that was so large and so good at sports that they recruited their high school players. And at one time, Sports Illustrated had rated them as the best athletic school in the country. And they were 8-0. And, and we were 8-0. And, and they were going to play in our gym. And so all the media came. I mean, normally our games before that, there would be just a few scraggly students because they had nothing better to do. But the gym was packed. And we won. And we were the front page, not just the front page of the sports page the next day, but it was like when you fold it out like this, we covered both sections. That we had beaten the giant, this little school, to go 9-0. and And that year, we won a championship. I got league coach of the year. I got week, you know, like... Coach of the Week for the radio station. They interviewed me on the radio station. I had articles in the newspaper. Um, the largest athletic association there, you know, named me as Coach of the Year. You know, I got all these awards, and then it started to go worse. You know, that sounds good, maybe, to you. I say it's going worse. You know, the, the more I became successful in those things, the less I cared about the things that really mattered. My relationship with my wife was not good. My new wife was winning. And um, I had pretty good players that year. I mean, it just so happened. I mean, I was, I was doing a decent job, but it just so happened that that first year, I also had really good players. And so as we went to the state tournament, which that school had never been to the state tournament, we finished fourth in the state that year, which was amazing. Players got a lot of attention, too. And so those, some of the best players uh, got recruited to other schools that had a longer history of winning. Because they were going to prepare them for the next level. The coaches would come in and say, yeah, you're just a one-hit wonder. You need to come to a factory where you're going to be you know, you're going to be ready for college. You're going to get scholarships. You're going to be great. And so our cupboard was depleted the next year. But the remaining parents wanted their children to be champions again. And so we started an effort toward that. And we ended up in a three-way tie for league champion again. Three-way tie. So we had a playoff. We actually drew cards and we actually got put out of the championship game. And the other two teams that we were tied with got to go to the championship game. And then we had to go through this playoff system. And, and at the time, I thought it was a blessing because the playoff system was televised. And so we got to be televised. And then we won in dramatic fashion to, go, to earn the state berth. And we went back to the state tournament. Most of my players that year graduated. The following year, I had only one returning player. But you know what? Everyone said to me, we won a championship again. <laughs> I just didn't have players, experienced players. So I started to resort to things like music. And I saw the power of music at work. In to get them to give more effort, to get them to like forget the pains, to get them to do things that they would not normally do. I used worldly music in practice, and it worked. It had a power over them, and they did things physically that they would not normally do. And we had success. 
again. But that music playing in my mind did something. You know, the competition and the attention to things that didn't matter really took me down a wrong course and led me to this point. I mean, by this point, I'm coaching on Sabbaths. Like, nothing matters. You know, I, I was a miracle baby put in a perfect Adventist community. And I'm not even Adventist anymore. I'm not Adventist. I'm not Christian anymore. I'm just trying to exalt self. But when that music, when I began to use that music, it actually did something to me. And I began to do things beyond even just not keeping the Sabbath that I would have never imagined that I would do. So there was a message earlier this week by Pastor Marath who said, you know, you are not above any sin. And he's right. Ellen White says that, you know, at the end, when the Holy Spirit is withdrawn, even Adventists who have not been drinking from the fountain of life every day will do things that we never thought imaginable. And so I just want to share that with you. I'm going to share a little bit more victory in the next session. But we're, we're done right here at 1140. I want to acknowledge the truth. The truth of the matter is the world is not good and it has nothing for us. And so I'm going to show you the temptation that Jesus had for basically the same thing that I decided to take. And then how that plays into the time of the end in our next session. In our next session. So um, if you will, just pray with me. Just pray with me. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your care, your hand involved in my life from the day I was born. And I thank you even for that correction of bringing me out of certain things, but also letting me to myself. Because I would rather be hot or cold than lukewarm. And so you showed me how awful my own way is. And so I pray that as I share these things, none of those things that I experience would be exalted in the minds of the people, but it would be evidence that our ways are not your ways. And they have nothing good in them. So I pray that we will surrender all, just like that little armor bearer, to your ways. And we'll say that, let it be unto me according to your heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.